Hear God's word from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. There's some stories in the Bible that are easy to misapply. You may have heard the story of David and Goliath taught in a sense that if you stand strong like David, you can slay the Goliaths in your life. That is not what that passage is about. And you may have also heard people say that if you have faith, Jesus will calm the storms in your life. It's also not what this passage is about. In David and Goliath, Jesus is the David who slays the Goliath, our enemy, sin itself, and Satan, and evil, and death. And today we see the same message. That as Jesus calmed the storm, the storm is our eternal enemy. Our sin, the death that it deserves. The story is that your ultimate storm The condemnation of your sin, the guilt of your past trespasses, and the threat of death, your ultimate storm has already been conquered in the person of Jesus Christ. So we'll look at the story of Jesus calming the storm in three parts today. First, facing the storm. Second, calming the storm. And third, seeing through the storm. Facing the storm, calming the storm, and seeing through the storm. First, facing the storm. Here we have Jesus and his disciples in a boat and they took him just as he was. That phrase puzzled me. Verse 36, what does it mean they took him just as he was? Well, it it reminds us we need to remember what he was just doing. He had just been in a boat preaching to the multitudes on the shore. And it seems that they, they didn't even let him go back to shore and to prepare. They just took him as he was across the lake. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And so that's how they took him. And when in Mark, you've, you've noticed that when there's a change of geography, there's also a change of theological focus. So he, now he's going from the east side of the sea where Capernaum is. Now he's going across to, excuse me, from the west side over to the east side. And as he goes over there, there's also a change in what Mark is doing in his narrative because you'll remember the last five parables have been parables about the kingdom. There are no more parables about the kingdom in this coming section. This coming section now is Jesus facing three cosmic enemies. Three battles, and each one mentions at the beginning the crossing of the sea. And so here he crosses to the other side. And in in the process of crossing, he encounters a storm. The next enemy he will come up against is in chapter 5, and it's he, he comes to uh, head-to-head with legion. 
the man who's possessed with many demons. And then after that, he comes to another Mark and Sandwich where Jesus confronts sickness and death itself. And so this is the first of three great battles. And we see Peter, much of Peter's eyewitness account coming through in Mark's telling here. We never hear again what happens to those other boats that were with them, but Peter told the story and he remembered the boats. And he remembered Jesus sleeping on a cushion as waves broke into the boat and the boat was already filling. Very vivid descriptions of this account. And what it does is it highlights for us the magnitude of this storm and how impressed this memory was in Peter's mind as Mark wrote down Peter's telling. Now, Peter and the other disciples, they were fishermen. They're used to squalls on the lake. They're used to the wind kicking up. They're used to the waves. This one, however, was especially large, an especially great storm compared to the ones that they would have been familiar with. Some of you may have seen a great archaeological discovery that was found in 1986 called the Galilee Boat. There were hundreds of fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee in these days, and one of them got lodged in the sand, and then when the Sea of Galilee receded, they were able to refloat the boat and preserve it. Not necessarily is it the one that Jesus was in. We're not saying that, but it gives us a good idea of the type of fishing boat that was common on the lake in those days, and they weren't that huge. 27 feet long. It's about three canoes, three kayaks, about four and a half feet deep and about seven and a half feet wide. So with waves crashing in on this boat, you can see how they would be terrified for their lives. There's absolutely a natural enemy the storm itself, and they were afraid that they might die. But if we look at this as just a natural battle, then we end up thinking that Jesus just fights our natural battle, so when life gets difficult, Jesus is going to fight our circumstances and make things better. He never promises to do that. He has the power to, and at times he does, and we praise him when he does. But at other times, he lets the storms roll. Many of these disciples died by martyrdom. Jesus did not rescue them from those storms. But he did rescue them from the ultimate storm. And there's a supernatural element to the storm that's going on. To the Jewish mind, the sea was associated with the abyss, with the deep, as it's called, where, where in these places dwell cosmic enemies, creatures of chaos and evil and death itself. It's a type of personification of evil as a watery force. And we see this all over the Old Testament. If you start looking for it, you'll see it in almost every other page. That's an exaggeration, but it is all over. Job 38, verses 16 and 17 says this. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? The sea is equated with the deep, which is the word for the abyss, which is equated with the gate of death, which is equated with the gates of deep darkness. The ocean represents more than just getting wet. There are lots of other passages that equate the sea with the abyss. We have Psalm 106, verse 9, Psalm 135, verse 6, Job 28, 14. And when Luke tells a story of Jesus casting out legion into the pigs and then into the sea, he calls the Sea of Galilee the abyss in Luke chapter 8. As Isaiah, or excuse me, as we sang about in our, in our psalm today, the flood covered the earth in the time of Noah. And that also is a symbol of death taking over so that God would rebuild and also a sign of God saving his people amidst 
death. And there's one psalm that is especially vivid, Psalm 89, verses 9 and 10, where the sea is equated with an enemy of God's. Psalm 89, verses 9 and 10 say this, speaking of God's power, the psalmist says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Now, when we hear Rahab, we automatically think of the prostitute. This is a different person. This is a different character. Rahab is a dweller in the abyss, kind of like Leviathan. And God scattered his enemy, crushed Rahab like a carcass as he stilled the raging of the sea. This is God of power who can keep these forces at bay. So yes, we see a natural enemy, but we also see a supernatural enemy represented in Mark's telling of the story. The sea is synonymous with the abyss, with the deep. It was representation to those people of the presence of evil and even death. And so the disciples are afraid not just of getting wet, but they are afraid that the abyss is rising against them and splashing into their boat. As such, the sea ends up being a regular opponent of Jesus's here in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 6, he shows his authority over it by walking on it. And he also shows his authority over it again in Mark chapter 6 when, he's, when the wind subsides as he simply gets into the boat. So they're facing the storm. And it's more than just water. This is a cosmic battle set up for us. It's the first of three battles and we'll look at the others in coming weeks. But we see as Jesus conquers his enemy, that's going to show us who he is. How he conquers his enemy is going to tell us who he is. So let's take a look at how Mark tells us this story. Because as you remember, Mark is trying to reveal who Jesus is little by little. Even though a bunch of the characters don't understand, he wants us to understand. And so he reveals little by little. So let's take a look at how he calms the storm. The calming of the storm. Here we see Jesus is the divine man. And he has the authority, yes, over natural forces, but also over supernatural enemies. And we see that he is human. He had been preaching all day. Evening came. He went down into the stern of the boat and he slept. He's a man. He grew tired. And even as this storm was raging, he slept as if there were no immediate threat. Because he... <coughs> had confidence in his father. He knew that he had a mission. He knew that God had designed redemption and that it would come to completion. He knew that the timely growth of the kingdom had its proper time. And so here in this storm, he knew that he, he had confidence in his father. But we also see that he is divine in how he responds. Once he is awakened by the disciples... He does two things. You see this in verse 37. Excuse me, verse 38. I'm off. One more try. Verse 39. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. He rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. Notice in both of these, the tool that he uses is his voice. His word alone has authority to rebuke the wind 
and to say to the sea, peace, be still. Now, to rebuke is a pretty common term in scriptures. But to rebuke the wind, to rebuke the waters had a special meaning. In Psalm 106, verse 9, God rebuked the Red Sea. Listen to this. It says, he rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. And he led them, that is Israel, through the deep, through the deep as through a desert. So when God, by his word, rebukes the sea, he provides dry land for his people to walk through that they might have life. God is fighting the enemies of his people. He has utter control over the wind. And so if Jesus is doing the same thing by his word, rebuking the wind and it obeys. That says that Jesus must be must have the same authority as God himself. This Jesus is divine because the waters, it says, excuse me, the wind, it says the wind ceased in verse 39. The wind obeyed. Jesus is all about the salvation of his people, just as God was about saving his people Israel through the Red Sea. So Jesus here is on mission to save his people by slaying their enemies. And so he first rebukes the wind. And now let's look at his second verbal action. He says to the sea, peace, be still. And what happens? There was a great calm, a great calm. Now, if you could somehow figure out how to control the wind, the waves would still be tumultuous for quite some time until they settle. I've, I've spent some time on the Sea of Galilee, and it, and it is beautiful, and there is a regular rhythm where every evening the waves are kicked up, but every morning it's as still as glass. It takes overnight for, those, for it to calm back down. Yet immediately, Jesus said to even the sea, peace be still, and it was like glass. A great calm. Jesus has authority over the natural world, but do you see the significance of what Jesus is doing supernaturally against the forces of darkness here? When Jesus says peace, this is a literal command to be quiet. And it is always given from a person who is superior to and inferior throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is calling on his authority over even the wind and the sea. As he says, be quiet. And then he says, be still, which also means be quiet. Two different words to express it, but, but be still actually has a, a slightly different meaning. It's a similar command but it's to, to peace, but it is the exact same command that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 1 as he was preaching in the synagogue to the demon. It's silencing. It's a word of exorcism. It's a, it's a word of spiritual power over enemies. So yes, Jesus is calming the storm, but he is also telling evil itself to be silent. What kind of authority is this? Who is this that can still the wind and the sea? Well, an understanding of the Old Testament shows us as we've mentioned briefly, it's only God who has this power. Only God can, by his power, keep these enemies at bay. In Habakkuk 3, it's a beautiful hymn of Habakkuk's. He highlights Yahweh as one with splendor, who deserves praise 
filled with brightness and wrath and anger and indignation. And Habakkuk elevates Yahweh as the mighty warrior who went out for the salvation of his people. And how did he do it? By crushing the head of the house of the wicked in Habakkuk 3.13. And how did he crush the head of the house of the wicked? But by trampling the seas, it says in chapter 3, verse 16. By trampling the seas with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Jesus is here trampling the seas and the surging of mighty waters because he, like the father, is going out for the salvation of his people and crushing the head of the house of the wicked. Jesus is showing incredible authority in this moment. This is victory that is God's. This is a savior with power. And the same theme returns in the Old Testament time and time again. Psalm 107, Psalm 93, Job 7, Job 26, and Mark 5. We'll see next week. Let's talk about this great calm. You would think that the tumultuous wind and waves would be more terrifying than the calm, but it is the great calm that scares the disciples more than anything. It says in verse 41, And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. They are in the presence of divine power. The one who was asleep on the cushion was greatly underestimated. The power that he possesses is more intimidating than any other enemy they could face, including a storm that is splashing into the boat. This is God with us. And the disciples are starting to see with more clarity who this Jesus is. That's our Savior calming the storm. And let's look now at the third and last part, seeing through the storm. Seeing through the storms. The disciples should have seen that Jesus there in the boat with them was the one with all authority. But instead... They became an example of what not to do by letting the storm that they faced have more power in their lives than God. They let the situation they were in overshadow the person of Jesus. They only saw what was in front of their face and they failed to take God at his word. They said, we are perishing Yet what had Jesus just taught them in the parables? The kingdom of God is advancing. What they felt did not cooperate with what they had heard Jesus said, and so they chose to believe what was going on in their situation rather than what Jesus had said. He had also just said, let us go across to the other side. They didn't trust him that he would be able to complete this mission. Jesus' word was not their primary focus of trust. And as a result, they had convinced themselves that Jesus didn't care. They said, do you not care? Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Maybe you feel that way. Maybe sometimes you feel like as you're facing those indescribable difficulties in life that you've not told people about. Maybe even those that you regularly seek counsel about or that pain that keeps coming back. Or as Pastor Pilon taught at Redeemer this morning, maybe you have guilt from your sins 10, 20, 30 years ago that keeps rearing its head. 
And we think, does God not care? Does he not seek to help me here? Let us not do what the disciples did. Let's remember, God does not abandon his people in difficulty. They didn't take God at his word when he promised his presence in difficulties. And the famous words of Isaiah 43 would have been very applicable here, where Isaiah says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That message would have been very applicable in that situation. And that message is exactly what we ought to remind ourselves of when we are in our natural storms and our circumstances. Let's remember our supernatural hope. You might say that's foolish. I know too much about science. I know too much about psychology. I know too much about my life to think that it could be fixed with some thoughts about God. Well, the fishermen were experts on the water. Their expertise led them to rebuke God with them. Let's not think that our supposed expertise in whatever our field is, is any more powerful than the truth of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, not our human expertise. Jesus should have been their focus instead because we know God is greater than the circumstantial storms that we find ourselves in and God is greater than the enemy of evil and death that we face on a day-in, day-out basis. He should have been the one to whom the disciples looked and He is the one to whom we ought to look. Jesus rebuked them, calling them so cowardly Verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid that we're so cowardly? Have you still no faith? Now, I can tell you, don't be anxious about anything. Fear not. But if that's just a self-improvement tip, it's not going to work. The only way we can not be anxious any longer than the only way that we can not fear is when we have our sights set on the one who actually has authority to conquer our enemies. And the disciples did learn as they saw Jesus in this moment, they finally started, it started to sink in when they said, who then is this? They knew that he was on a kingdom mission, but now they see that not even a storm, not even death itself can stop this king who was on a mission. They knew that he could heal sickness. But now they see that he, can, he has control over the whole world. They know he can cast out a demon. And now they see that he has authority over evil itself. Let us look to the Savior with, who has such power. He is the object of our faith. And he patiently showed himself to the disciples again. And he patiently shows himself to you and to me when we misunderstand again and again and again. So let us be those who walk by faith, not by sight. Let us not be blinded by our situations and miss our Savior who is God with us. Now, all this is a foreshadow of what Christ is going to do in 10 chapters. All of this is priming the pump, waiting to see how does Jesus conquer evil. Fast forward and we see on the cross, and when when Christ died and when he rose, the enemy, Satan, 
was conquered forever. He was put at rest. On that day, death was stripped of its power. Death is swallowed up in victory, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to recalm the storm because the ultimate storm has already been stilled for us. Yet we will continue to face natural circumstantial difficulties. But we won't anymore see them as tsunamis threatening to wipe us out for eternity. They will be like a water gun shooting against a cruise ship. Because we have more, we have more strength standing what Christ has done, knowing that our enemy has been conquered. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Jesus says in Matthew 10. We'll face lots of enemies that threaten to kill our bodies, but they cannot take our souls. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this theme stretches all the way to the end of Scripture. The last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, also bring up this theme of the sea. And you'll remember in Revelation 4, the the sea before the throne of God, when when he is exercising full reign, the sea is like glass. I've heard people say that that means God likes hockey. What that means is that the enemy has no more power. What that means... In Revelation 21, it says it slightly differently. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Jesus will not just still, but he will eradicate our ultimate enemy. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears anymore. We will not be held guilty for our sins. And so we look forward to that. And as Jesus is on mission here in this passage, we see his kingdom advancing in veiled terms, yet we will see it clearly on that last day. So when you face death, don't forget, that is not our final enemy. Physical death is not our ultimate foe. We are all destined to die once. It's the second death that we have been saved from. This passage does not promise that Jesus is going to still whatever storm you face, but it is a promise that he will be with you through the storm. And it is a promise that he has conquered the ultimate storm. You might be watching a loved one die and you wish it would just be over. Your family might be crumbling around you and you wish the storm would just be over. You might have recurring stressors or guilt from things that you've done. They just keep coming back and you can't shake them, these ghosts. You might be afraid that somebody might blackmail or slander and that your whole reputation will be ruined. A Christian will know that all those worst fears could come to, come to be. And we would still be held by the hands of our Savior. 
we will still be carried to the end. He has still slain the ultimate enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers of darkness. The enemy is defeated. The strength that we possess as we endure this journey is the power of his resurrection. Your ultimate enemy has been slain. Your accuser now has no power. Your sins are forgiven and will not be held against you. And in Christ, your eternal belonging has been sealed. Will we take God at his word when he says these things are true? Let's take God at his word. His spirit is with you. Even when you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, he tells us his truth in his word. Make it a lamp to your feet and a light to your path because we find life there in his word. When you need comfort, do you seek him for it? He provides it by his spirit, by his word, and by fellow believers. Trials will come. Yet on that last day, we will see God And we will be satisfied.